Welcome to School of Movies. Arrival. Time is Arrival's biggest mystery. And tonight on our show we are going to attempt to express what lies within and without its non-linear frame. This is the last of our summer 2019 commission season. Keep your eyes and ears peeled for our next run and get your pitches in as early as possible for consideration. This is a film we've been wanting to do for a while, but we knew it was going to be a supreme challenge. It is complex and dense and rich and very emotionally powerful, and that is an intimidating combination. My kind of Lovecraftian, progressing beyond the antiquated worldview. It's like 2001 with heart, interstellar with more focus, and it's mostly just people talking in rooms. It will knock you on your ass and you must see it before you listen to our show. This is one to know well enough before you hear our translation. So we will proceed with the assurance that everybody listening has seen it already. And we are going to cover it in four quadrants. Language, fear, time and connection. And when you watch it the second time and you realize what's going on, like, it was fascinating the first time watching it with an audience who were actually remarkably well-behaved, now that I recall. I don't re- remember being annoyed by their lack of engagement being audible, which is something that happened to you with um, A Monster Calls. And yeah. was it Logan and as well? Logan, yeah. And, Fucking Christ. Uh, there was a bit of it for the Purge election year, mm. which I also... That's a bit more forgivable you. relative but to yeah, the other two. Yeah, I can understand that a little bit, but, uh, yeah. But when you know what's going on, there was just instantly, as soon as that music kicked in, as soon as the imagery kicked in, instant tears. And this is the worst thing imaginable. It's a mother with her child from birth through to uh, teenage illness and death. And all of those points in between of the joy and connection between the two of them as well... as well as anger and pain and deep, deep sadness. And it's the worst thing in the world to be, as Thayer and said, the parent who has to bury their child. The worst thing imaginable. So, um, Brendan said on uh, Twitter that uh, he's been avoiding this film uh, since Marion, his daughter, was born. Uh, and he'll watch it again just to listen to our show, but it's going to be hard going for him. I remember there was one film which you wouldn't watch for years after Lyra was born, The Orphanage. Mm, yeah. A conflict exists in this film between language and science. Or Now, originally I interpreted this as a dichotomy between spirituality and science itself, which is something that's manifested in uh, a bunch of films which you said this reminded you of. Mm. Uh, Contact written by Carl Sagan, Sunshine, directed by Danny Boyle, and... um, Blade Runner 2049. That's the one, directed by Denis Villeneuve himself. Mm. And I would add Interstellar to that as well. Interstellar is not in my top five sci-fi films because it is a little baggy, and you're right about the lack of focus, but it has that same tone to it. Mm. We actually tried to do Contact one time, remember? we, We sat at a table and sort of went back and forth, and it just sort of circled the drain and dropped through and and didn't end up being particularly compelling or engaging but we've been saving Sunshine Sunshine is one of those films that just means so much to us that it is intimidating trying to work out a way to express that Arrival has had less time to cement itself but it is I'd say an equal of Sunshine to me Mm. and it's it still has that sense of 
being difficult to put into words, which is ironic given given the themes. See, I don't think this film attempts to place science and spirituality in opposition in the way that uh, those other films do. And at the same time, those other films also challenge the idea that those two things have to exist in a vacuum against one another. Yeah, but I, I think the idea that language and science are somehow in opposition is not quite correct the it feels like an expansion of some of the themes in contact for example the idea that maths is a universal language because it contains only numbers and facts like literal facts that cannot be disputed and Ian literally says Louisa approaches language like a mathematician yeah but language to me is the intercession between science and that concept of things which are either correct or they are not and art and emotion where everything is very fuzzy and further communication is necessary to make sure that the correct point's been got across. Language is an expression of thought through abstraction. Absolutely. It's the one thing we have as humans that animals don't have, at least not in any way that we can comprehend. I think it would be true to say that that we haven't discovered an animal that has a system of languages as complex as we as humans have. Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, you're right. That's not quite accurate. They do communicate. They communicate with each other, but not in abstractions Mm. because they don't need them. Yeah. It's much more direct. Mm. Is this the first Denis Villeneuve film we've done? We have we done Blade Runner twenty forty nine? We haven't yet. yet. We've then, been holding that one back because it's special too. Yeah. Then yes, this is the first because mm. we certainly haven't done Sicario, and we haven't done Prisoners. No. So hi, Denny. Nor would we. And, um, I I wanted to point out uh, from the very beginning, uh, he has a gift for capturing stillness in an arresting fashion. Stillness, that is, the ability to convey that mood to the audience in a way that stills the viewer as well, that holds you in check. When I talk about visual communication in film, this is what I'm on about. The the being able to take the surface level visuals and look at composition and framing and to have all of those elements mean something. This is one of the reasons why I get so frustrated when we have, and it doesn't happen very often, but when we have people asking us about the relative merits of certain technical skills, if those technical skills are not being used to communicate something artistically, then I can't comment on how good or not they are. I'm not a technical film reader. I'm not a photographer. Those are not the the elements of it that I understand. If those technical elements are communicating something artistically and emotionally, that's the bit where I comprehend it when the metaphor comes in. And it would be a lot easier to talk about the visuals of a film if we were if we had a regular YouTube channel where we could pause and point to certain 
elements of the film. I would I would actually really like to do that mm-hmm. so that we can focus on a side of the uh, filmmaking that we have to talk about in the abstract and you guys have to either remember or remember what we're saying so that you can see it next time to be able to pause the image and go look here Mm. Uh, the the way that Vanity Fair do with their um, when they get on their directors and they get them with magic markers to point to and and outline various things on screen Mm. to be able to interact with the going to use that 50 cent word here mise-en-scene of what we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. But again, speaking of of language and how difficult it can be to communicate those things, one of the most frustrating elements of that type of conversation where somebody's asking for those uh, merit judgments and I can't give them is that the language I'm using to try and explain how I relate to film doesn't always seem to come across. Mm. And this is a film where communication problems could cost lives or indeed planets. Absolutely. And that small-scale attention to that kind of detail is one of the things that fascinates me the most. The, the moment that Louise was most my hero, although she is throughout most of this, but the, my, my best moment for her was when she challenges what a sentence might mean when it seems superficially to be very self-explanatory and she's like, no, 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 wait, wait. She goes into it full... It could mean something massively different. She goes into full teacher mode. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, this is where you want to get to, right? Here's the question. Okay. So, first, we need to make sure that they understand what a question is. Okay, the nature of a request for information along with the response. Then... We need to clarify the difference between a specific you and a collective you because we don't want to know why Joe Alien is here. We want to know why they all landed. And purpose requires an understanding of intent. We need to find out, do they make conscious choices or is their motivation so instinctive that they don't understand a why question at all? And, and biggest of all, we need to have enough vocabulary with them that we understand their answer. And they were going out of their way with the spaceships. Could we even call them spaceships? I think they call them shells. Okay, the shells, uh, to create something that uh, looked uh, you know, superficially like we'd imagine a flying saucer. But then when you actually get down to the detail, it's very unlike something we've seen before. They, um, Villeneuve is... Uh, convinced that uh, there's so much in the universe we don't yet know about so he wanted this to be created from some kind of element that we aren't familiar with that uh, it should have a shape that doesn't necessarily lend itself to interstellar flight Uh, it it is vertical the whole time which uh, basically makes it evoke the monolith from 2001 it is a great big pop culture reference saying we are here to advance you calm the fuck down approach <laughs> and yet there's a smoothness and a roundedness to it which actually speaks of uh, the the gentleness of the heptapods inside mm, yeah. and yet they're fucking terrifying to look at like if these things turned hostile you could quite imagine them causing havoc uh, but they're, they're scary and weird and un- unlike human beings enough to feel like they evolved somewhere else entirely and to evoke a realistic fear in humans. Mm, yeah. Who th- would demand that they look more like us because we're very self-centered. I think part of their shape and particularly 
about two thirds of the way through the film when we finally get to see them at full length because for the vast majority of the time we don't or we see their their lower extremities. I think it's important that that's a reveal because mm. that's that's kind of a like your comprehension expands exactly. at that stage. And You're looking into the face of God. That's right. And and I have and and specifically that section of the film Louise has to be moved from normal human space with human surroundings and even the tunnel that they go through to stand at the screen to communicate with the heptapods is is sort of it's it's enclosed it may not be of a material that we can understand but it is a material that we can stand on when she goes through into their chamber the atmosphere's wrong the light is all changed the gravity the gravity's out and of place speed. She, it's like she's surrounded by water she's floating she has to kind of get a grip to to be able to just be in that place to communicate with them and that that sense of here is the space that you sit in to get this very intense explanatory message now at this point when it is really really crucial that felt to me like this is you're going in to sit down to watch a film it's going to give you information in a very sharp bright intense encapsulated experience and it will communicate something to you that you didn't know going in but you will know going out it's it's almost like a Villeneuve said he wanted these beings to feel sacred. It feels temple-like. It feels like there's a, a spiritual experience simply because it is so removed, so separate from the everyday experience. But I think, speaking of their what they look like, one of the things that makes them seem so alien is that they are like a part of us. They are very like hands. And although they have seven limbs not five if you look at the way they're arranged they have like the the two limbs that go back to steady them are like the little finger and the thumb can stick backwards and there is a lot of visual focus in this on communicating with hands there are shots where louise is thinking and it cuts onto her hands interacting with each other expressing what she's feeling even though she's not speaking and the point of real contact between her and the heptapods is when she puts her hand on the screen and um and says that's a hello exactly and i think abbott does the same he puts he they puts a hand up to contact with her as well. They don't overlay, which I thought was quite interesting. It's it's as if that whole screen is the communication uh, conduit, but that sense of touch, and it's very close to, I don't think it's directly connected with, but it's very close to one of her flash, backstroke forward memories of Hannah being small, and that communication between mother and child is touch before it's anything else it's touch and hand to hand open palm is is an expression of peace of of i'm not here to hurt you look there's nothing here that's going to harm you there's so many gestures that are made with hands that can communicate more than words can and again, I'm I'm gesturing a lot more than I normally would yeah, for the sake of this. Speaking but. like an Italian woman. At this point. <laughs> um, and you want to go back to the temple thing? Palm to palm is holy, palm is kiss. There's a monastic side of that. Mm-hmm. 
but the way that uh, Villeneuve shoots this whole introduction to the shells is absolutely hypnotic and the score that comes in this sort of minimalistic kind of it's it's almost a Gregorian chant by elephant whales if that makes sense mm, yeah the the first sounds you hear from them mm. are very resplendent of whale song yeah uh, Villeneuve very specifically wanted them if they were going to resemble anything to be uh, whale like and the approach just to this aperture the, the the glass where it sort of fills the screen in, the, in this beautiful you know striking white box dwarfing the humans like it's there's a somber feeling to it from the word go and it's really refreshing to not have the trappings of a lot of other sci-fi in there I mean we are absolutely there for sci-fi in all shapes and sizes but um, if you compare this like the absolute worst contender which was released around about the same time was uh, Independence Day Resurgence now Independence Day is a really good movie still but Resurgence was a horrendous saber rattling vacuous empty narcissistic and rotten movie that uh, uh, made me feel very sad and sick to watch and uh, made considerably more than Arrival because of course it would there is a documentary style at times to bridge several uh, gaps in the story. There were going to be multiple scenes where various things were established, like who the heptapods were and how they communicated and the nature of sensiographic writing conveying meaning but not representing sound. Uh, but it, they ended up just abbreviating that to some very elegant voiceovers from Jeremy Renner uh, as, as Ian just being very clear, laying out the foundations of what we need to know, and it's... I feel like an extra half hour on this film would weaken it, would burden it. And that, just that brevity there really helped to just, like, get let's get forward to the important stuff. It's one of the best examples of elegant exposition I think I've ever seen. Mm. There are at least three places in this maybe more where they have to deliver or well not they have to but they choose to deliver a lot of information in a very short space of time not all of it is relevant but all of it is world building in a way that the bits that are significant will linger so when they do resurface later on you'll remember them and when all of the um communication screens start getting disconnected when things start to go wrong um, you whispered to me that we develop the ability for everyone to talk to each other and the real danger comes when that gets taken away talking about the internet but I added to that things went wrong when everybody did start talking to each other because this was before we were culturally inclined to listen to one another mm. and there's two facets to this I think that it are touched on briefly but occurred to me as we were watching it the 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 prevalence of screens as a means of communication in this and in this day and age screens are our primary means of of contacting people that are outside our immediate reach they are our macro windows into the outer world exactly but here's the thing screen has two meanings it can be something that you communicate through it can also be something that you pull across to cut yourself off from people obscuring 
And the other factor is they they go into a discussion about how learning a different language can rewire your brain and can make you think in a different way. You're talking about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Correct. Because the qualities of the language that you're speaking impact on the way you think. Now, that can also be extended to the way that you write. The ink that the heptapods use to communicate, they find a way to let Louise connect with it so she can use it to write to them so she doesn't have to use the computer program that they've devised to enable the communication to begin with. I think you'll find this was the heptapod version of those um, little plastic face games with the iron filings and the magic pencil. Yes, exactly. Precisely, yeah. But but it occurred to me that our, our understanding of communication has taken a huge shift since we went from writing with pens which even if you're not talking about a a Western left-to-right alphabet, there are still other languages that use pens and brushes to to create symbols that mean things. Vertically or right-to-left. But how do we write now? We poke at a keyboard. We're not creating those shapes of letters ourselves anymore. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that that is inherently a bad thing. My ability to write was unlocked when I was granted access to a keyboard. Absolutely. I always hated forming those loops. Absolutely. It made my hand hurt. And so there are many, many positive elements to, to shifting our communication from that flow and writing to a keyboard but it does then change your relationship with those words. If you can create entire sentences, entire paragraphs, and the other person isn't going to get them until you hit send, that's very different from speaking to somebody, from uh, writing a letter. I mean, a letter is different. Again, you handwrite a letter, you post it, they're not going to get it for days. The situation may have changed wildly before that communication gets to them. Each of these forms of communication have different implications. And the the chunks of text going out in blocks, that was something I mentioned to you in terms of when you read, your brain does not take in what you're reading a word at a time. It doesn't build sentences like bricks building a, a row. You look at an entire paragraph it all goes in at once your brain might make sense of it sequentially but your eyes see it and that therefore makes you aware of the context of the individual words before you've consciously recognized that that's what you're doing and as i said the cultural uh, revolution has had to run as fast as it possibly can to keep up with the technology as we've basically been grabbed and run through uh, the evolution of computers from this luxury item that you might have in your living room if your parents could afford it in the 90s to now absolutely everyone has to have a tiny little communication device which they consult all the time. You're doing it right now. (laughs) I am looking at my notes. It is relevant. But that was in our lifetimes. Mm. When we were teenagers, it was, sta- it was the first stage. And now that we're in our 40s, it's in this later stage. And there are consequences to growing up writing in that very specific way on 
YouTube comment sections, or on 4chan, or on Reddit, or on 8chan. What you're surrounded by, what you're compelled to say, what people's reactions to that are. Mm. That is your language. That is the most important language in terms of informing on who you are really inside versus your representative that you allow out into the world, yeah. which is you on your best behavior. There's also something significant about writing a negative thought that you've had on a board and then coming back later and reading other people's responses to it, whether they are egging you on or trying to calm you down, but your words are still there. And if you go back to them, there's every chance that that's going to re-invoke that same emotional uh, push that made you write them in the first place. And there's a link there with graffiti. It's yeah. the idea of I am here. You're putting a stamp on the world but that stamp is also going to have an impact on you if you come back to it somebody could read that two years later you could have completely changed your mind but they're making judgments about you based on something that you said two years ago if you express a negative feeling in a conversation once it's said yes the impact of what you say is obviously going to affect the person that you're talking to but once you've said it it almost, it, it can release a tension that now isn't there for you anymore. This is one of the, the key elements of the, the strength of therapy, that once you've said something, the force behind that trauma, that anger, that, that emotion is shared and by sharing dispelled. So you can look at it with a bit more space and a bit more clarity. But conversely, uh, if you are putting out bad things into the world or corrupt things or I love the old days, you know? contentious things or lying things or you know what I hate? hateful things. We're not allowed to punch back anymore. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. That can be amplified. Absolutely. And if you say those emotions that are disturbing you to a rally full of people who cheer every hate spat syllable like to punch him in the face I'll tell you rather than a therapist who will help you to harness it and dispel it if you're lucky then, enough to be able to have access to a therapist well absolutely but it, it that the other context will rebound that on you and how can you then let go of it if you throw it out there and people roar at you for it Positively. Which brings us to the second stage, fear. Now, there's a relatively calm, quiet initial reaction, which was quite refreshing for a movie about what appears to be alien invasion, certainly alien visitation. Um, again, it was the opposite of resurgence, but it also made me think, and this was not entirely unfounded because the production designer was the same for both films. This is what Prometheus could have been if the modus operandi of Ridley Scott's film had not been horror. Scott wanted to make a clever sci-fi in the same universe as Alien. Although philosophical and scientific questions about who we are, where we came from, who made us, are threaded throughout, they are written on top of John Spate's very basic action horror script informed upon by the series so far. So because of its horror bent, all those questions had to be answered with terror and disappointment and betrayal, which made for an unenriching experience for me. Because Scott had already mastered terror and betrayal 33 years previously. You admire it. 
Admire's purity. Survivor. Grow clouded. By conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Because ultimately the, the, the conclusion drawn in Prometheus is that uh, if there is a god, he probably hates us. But again, since he's making a horror film, it's kind of imperative that there be uh, a measure of uh, Lovecraftian threat there, which would be very, very difficult to escape from, to challenge, might simply send you mad even, even in attempting to comprehend it. Mm. Whereas this is a visit from very light-handed parental figures imparting to us a lesson in introspection. Mm, It's talking. It's a lot of talking and uh, the attempt to stave off aggression. Similar to Planet of the Apes, I said back when we did Dawn, it's it's an anti-action film. You don't want there to be explosions. There's one explosion in this film and you don't want it to happen. You're dreading it. You don't want action or violence and when they're analog for Alex Jones starts talking about why can't we just shoot the aliens or at least fire a shot across their bows and just displaying this pig ignorance uh, he's almost invoking a line from Independence Day once again the LAPD is asking Los Angeles not to fire their guns at the visitor spacecraft you may inadvertently trigger an interstellar war it's that level of ignorant unevolved human aggression mm. The line delivered by the shock jock on the radio is some of these people don't even have guns or most of these people don't even have guns. And it's it, a YouTube that's doc channel. meant to be ridiculous. Why would these people have guns? Why would violence be the first response? Everyone in the town saw the UFOs. Police chief, mayor, they all saw the fucking UFOs, all right? And I'm curious, I asked people what it was like. Oh man, it was incredible, incredible. People came from miles around to look at them. A lot of people came armed. People are bringing shotguns to UFO sightings. Don't you think there's a point where we're gonna drop the fucking weapons? I mean, (laughs) the mothership comes, uh, maybe we don't know everything. (laughs) Wow. Kind of brings whole new meaning to that phrase, you ain't from around here, are you boy? spelling out the reason aliens haven't shown up on this planet yet. Well, exactly. If they're aware of us, that would be their main reason. That's another thing as well. The fact that uh, in the the short story that this is based on, the aliens don't come to Earth. They communicate through remote Mirrors. They send out a whole bunch of Skype mirrors. Um, And they changed it for the film because they needed an alien presence actually on the ground. But that won't happen. If contact is made with us, it will not be on Earth. It will be at a, a step removed that we have to get to first to demonstrate that we have got the capacity to understand what they're bringing to us. Mass Effect rules. Absolutely. We can get to Mars, we can get the plans for the Mass Effect relay. That's right. But the, the, whenever you kind of pull back from the the, uh, the lab on the ground and the, the tents at the site of, of where the shells arrived in Montana when you see what's going on with people in the wider world, there is, there's rioting, there's... Panic on the streets of London 
there's aggression. There's even at the very beginning as Louise is walking through the car park at the college, you've got people bumping into each other in their cars because they don't know what's going on. It's you've still relatively orderly compared on. with a Michael Bay it film is. where they're going, oh my God, Absolutely. all the time. Yeah, but but that that kind of... That horror response, I think the the films that we mentioned before, Contact, Blade Runner uh, 2049 and Sunshine and, and Interstellar and, and many others, what they have in common or one of the things that they have in common that appeals to me the most is the the fact that in inevitability there is both dread and peace and films like Prometheus because they're trying to be more of a horror the focus is very much on the dread and you mentioned about the whole sort of the Lovecraftian element and obviously in the shape of the heptapods you've got Cthulhu tentacly bits going on there but they're almost a parody of Cthulhu absolutely but it occurred to me how inappropriate a name is Lovecraft he crafts the opposite of love the things he builds there is no room for love in the fear that is brought by this this huge space between what we comprehend and what we're being shown and the fact that the the films the sci-fi films that i really respond to the most are ones where what they're exploring is okay can we approach this gap with curiosity instead of terror instead of fear instead of despair yeah despair plus having to force yourself through life and just carry on as normal mm. that's the gateway drug towards nihilism mm. as far as I'm concerned if Absolutely. you're experiencing despair for long enough and at the same time you have to go oh fucking gotta go to work tomorrow those two together the normalising of despair mm eventually will lead you to believe in nursing, Lebowski, nursing. Yeah, but this... Which sounds exhausting. In many ways, this actually feels more like the World War Z book than, but in many ways, in, in every way that really counts, than the Brad Pitt movie, which was called World War Z, but bore no resemblance to the book at all. There is a sense here of many nations all tentatively talking to each other and just deciding what the hell is to be done about this massive, massive thing. And it's more than just that level of communication. It's the, our whole worldview is changed now. Everything that we thought mattered has kind of gone out the window in the face of this. And I do wonder what a Villeneuve version of World War Z would be like. I think it would be fucking fascinating. He's got that methodical... I think it comes down to balance between what we want to be true and what is achievably true Mm, is probably the best way of putting it. Yeah, there's a degree of, I know we've already said inevitability, but there's an element of relentlessness in the way he creates shots and I know a lot of this is his DP but he doesn't work with the same DP every time so he's obviously communicating this to them but things like he uses in this particularly there's deep focus there's slow zooms there's all these vertical tracking shots that combine with the soundscape to kind of give this this heartbeat that's so slow it's like the heartbeat of a planet I cannot believe that uh, the cinematographer Bradford Young also did Solo, one of, I think, my least favourite films in terms of what it could have been, in terms of what 
I could not see, as in the whole thing was washed out and bleached, and I couldn't see faces. It was all just a bunch of shadows talking to each other, with some faint lines to indicate mouths and eyes. Mm. Same guy. And I cannot, I, I, I can't correlate the two. But again, I think a lot of this is down to directorial guidance. And, and uh, Jung did say, actually, in some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, that he had to unlearn a lot of what he'd previously understood about directing uh, cinematography. Maybe so. He's had a, a, a lengthy career of doing short films. Mm. Um, but, I mean, Ron Howard doesn't normally work in, in bleached-out faces either. Anyhow, uh, the um, Foley artists on this, uh, you, you mentioned before they were creating a soundscape, I equated it to do it, uh, performing animation in reverse. Animators for a, a Disney film, say, they take the vocal tracks and then they animate the keyframe um, the, and sculpt the faces of the characters as they perform this dialogue based upon what's been spoken by the voice actors. Whereas these Foley artists had to look at the heptapods talking and had to make those sounds corresponding with what we could see on screen with what the effects that they were given. Mm. And they created a soundscape that draws you in and holds you. And you're kind of just on the edge of your seat. There's something about every th the way that all the humans react in this that makes you sit up, take a sip of coffee, and focus fully on what you're seeing. Mm. As opposed to just, it's not a hangover movie. No. You are not going to be just half ignoring this film. You Absolutely either pay not. attention or you don't watch well, it. Well, this, again, this is what, for me, the medium is made for. I'm, I am a very, very visual person, and if something is communicating with me visually, it will have... 90% of my attention, 80-90% of my attention, if you then layer on a soundscape that is totally congruous and in sync with what I'm seeing, whether that's music, whether it's background noise, whether it's script... In this case, it was slowed down bagpipes yeah. and a, a, a real <laughs> lung that they made out of rice paper to yeah. create very, very slow exhalations. Absolutely. But, but if all of that combines, that will then get the last 15 or so percent of, of my attention and, and really pull me in. And if that combination can then evoke an emotional response in me, that's the, the feeling that is kind of the last piece of the puzzle. Those audio, my audio attention is very hard to grab on its own because of the way my brain processes sound what I'm seeing has to match up with what I'm hearing, otherwise I don't really hear it sometimes. Mikey from Filmjoy pointed out that most of the uh, actions that Amy Adams' character, Louise, has to combat throughout this film are based on aggression, obviously, but also impatience. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, we need to know now what why this is happening. This is massive imperative that we do not want to be caught with our pants down yeah. by these clearly far advanced aliens. They've got us. They've caught us. There's nothing we can do. Shooting at them ain't going to fix this. But there's this misapprehension that showing early aggression will win the day, perhaps, where otherwise all would be lost. Absolutely. But her... Like the scene where she breaks the sentence down mm -hmm. to demonstrate why she can't ask that question yet is 
brilliant. It makes everything so very, very clear. And I love the fact that she's explaining all this to Forrest Whitaker, again, full on teacher mode. She doesn't even need to get to the end of her explanation. She's almost there and he's like, right, yes, okay. I, yeah, I understand now. I will go and communicate that to the yeah. bosses. But he's that- not uh, invited to the room because every time he did, he went to Abbott and Costello and went, are you the pilot? Bogart will find out. <laughs> But that that impatience, that we need to know the answer to this now, the, the not being able to grasp the glacial method of communication that the heptapods, the heptapods use because there is no impatience for them. They don't need to be impatient for anything because they know it will happen. Mm-hmm. And the, the humans are trying to grasp at a future that they can't see and if they, I, I think there's kind of an unspoken element to this that if they had succeeded in that trying to visit the violence on them, the heptapods wouldn't have understood that because they wouldn't be able to grasp, well, why do you need to act in haste like this when this is going to happen? And that fundamentally thinking differently about things and seeing things in, in different ways that's summed up with the the phrase that nobody can agree on, which is the offer weapon. And the the Chinese interpretation of that being use weapon and thinking what they mean is they're going to attack rather than hand you something. Draw sword, you could argue, means the same thing. The context of uh, uh, all of the Chinese communication was through mahjong, which uh, what they pointed out in the, in the film means that every interaction is based on a win-lose scenario, that everything is based on competition. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the elements of, just to go off into a sort of slightly side political tangent, trying to communicate with, with people whose fundamental understanding of their rights is that they be allowed to carry firearms. It's so difficult to express to people who think solely in those terms that what's fundamentally wrong with that being your representation of you getting the things that you are entitled to? Because that means everybody around you has to live in fear. But their response to that would be, well, why don't they all have their own guns too? Oh, my God, you're making it worse. Again, it's... it's also, how would that diminish in, your fear? Well, exactly, it doesn't, and that's the point. But that's what I mean, the, the difference in, in language and in perception and the issues that we've had in this country with the, the idea that people are so behind this concept that we must leave the EU. Fundamentally, when people have tried to argue that there are reasons why it's of benefit so why is it such a big deal for you that we must leave it's the fundamental I won't be told what to do it doesn't matter if what I'm being told to do is good for me I won't be told what to do and again it's that how do you communicate? How do you have those debates? How do you have those discussions when fundamentally the two sides are discussing different things? They don't have a commonality of, of point. There is nowhere that they can meet in the middle, or at least if there is, we haven't found it because the two sides are so built around 
but we must win. And if we win, then that means that you must lose. And then the other side's like, but this isn't about a win-lose thing. We're trying to make sure that everyone gets as close as possible to a win state. Exactly. And that's why I love this film so much. (laughs) On a side note, by the way, uh, thinking about impatience, it's not a characteristic shared by uh, characters who possess a deep, deep wisdom. They tend to be quite patient, uh, which is why I think I love Gandalf quite so much. I think he might still be my favourite uh, character in all of literature and cinema uh, because he is possessed of a deep, deep wisdom, but he has that human frailty of impatience. Yeah. Well, how that wisdom manifests for him is... Even the very wise can assume ends. And that's because even when you can see where all those threads are going, humans can only see so far. Even Louise can only see so far when the future starts to open itself up to her. And there are a lot of uh, civilians who are on the outside. We only see this through news reports, but they're very worried about dying. They're very worried about... There's uh, that soldier who's, uh, whose wife is clearly convinced he's going to die. There's frightened cultists who burn themselves alive because they can't do anything to affect the fact that aliens have arrived. They can't attack the aliens. The only thing they can do is set fire to themselves, mm. which is true despair. Yeah. I did wonder, actually, this could be complete coincidence, but is there any significance in the fact that there are 144 of them? And if I remember from correctly from the watchtowers that I used to read when they put them through the door when I was a kid, 144,000 people is how many Jehovah's Witnesses believe are going to heaven after Judgment Day. That might be the case. And uh, the heptapods intentions are doubted by uh, the uh, higher-uppers in the military who are suspicious that it could be a higher power causing unrest amongst the nations of the earth to get us to destroy each other so that they can move in and mop up afterwards, which happened uh, with the British with India, which happened with the Germans with Rwanda, and Russia with America, and Russia with Europe. But again, that that approach, that mentality of the only way that I can relate to this large group of disparate people that's all made up of individuals. And honestly, as the human race gets bigger and bigger and bigger, that's the thing that that is overwhelming to comprehend. How many billions of us there are now? How overwhelming must it be to think that you have to communicate with all of those billions of people. It's just not possible. And it is entirely feasible that somebody who is in a position to need to do that might start thinking in terms of, well, if we can thin out the herd a bit, then maybe we can actually get a dialogue going with the handful of people who are left. Who are going to be too scarred to actually communicate peacefully. And therein lies the uh, difficulty. Hmm. Um, at one point, Ian, in a scene which didn't make the final cut, tried to exemplify to uh, Louise using salt to uh, make his point that the human race began as this tiny, tiny little you know, trace of uh, life and has built and built and built funnel shape until it's now this great big lump of salt. 8% of all humans who have ever existed are alive now. That's how many of us there are relative to how many of us there have been. But the aggression towards the shells, when the 
heptapods show no aggression whatsoever and are clearly here just to help us uh, made me think of throwing spears at a monolith mm. uh, or else because the monolith is there to get you to be able to even understand what the hell a spear is it's just flinging our own feces at a monolith <laughs> I'd like to take a moment to appreciate the music of Johan Johansson, composer for Arrival, whose work you've been hearing throughout this episode is beyond transcendent, it's otherworldly. He also worked with Villeneuve on Prisoners and Sicario. He was the music and sound consultant on Mother, who originally composed a 90-minute score for that film, but then on watching it with Darren Aronofsky, they both agreed that the film worked better without the score, instead going with a very minimalist sound design based on the ambience of the house. It's an exceptional composer who can take themselves out of the equation for the good of the film. Johansson died in February 2018, age 48. Also want to give a massive shout out to Andy Rodriguez, who commissioned this episode. I am in retrospect extremely glad that he gave us that nudge out of the door on this daunting task. thanking people let's give a shout out to our top tier patrons Joel Robinson Benjamin Biddle Abel Savard Michael Hasco Connor Kennedy Brian Novak Evan Jankowski Sarah Montgomery Dan Hepner Johan Clayson Tyler Long Joe Gasiga Greg Downing Tim Rosinski Christopher Wolf Kat Esman Cassandra Newman Timothy Green Matthew A. Siebert Joseph Gluck Luke Hatfield Nick Ord Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dackler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And this piece is Desert Music from Sicario. But let's move on to time, and one of the 
greatest achievements of the film is the use of the Kuleshov effect as a misdirection tool. This was in one of the videos we saw earlier, but I'd already written it on my um, notes. Uh, we'd been taught all about the Kuleshov effect by... Folding ideas. Folding ideas, Dan Olson. Um, this is where two shots in, on film are juxtaposed uh, to express a relationship between those two things and I think there was a uh, example used where two shots of Alfred Hitchcock just looking at the camera followed by a shot of a it's a the first one is a mother with a baby mother with a baby which makes it look like oh he's just looking at a mother with a baby and the other shot is a, a sexy girl in a bikini which makes him look like a dirty old man and his shot doesn't change at all it's our perception of him that changes when the next shot indicates what he appears to be looking at and the Kuleshov effect is used here because at the beginning Louise is with her daughter Hannah eventually dies leaving her distraught and then we cut to her apparently later in inverted commas and we interpret this very quiet woman as someone who is reserved because she's gone through a hell of a lot of shit already which we've just seen that has informed upon her character and then whenever we flash back to something with her daughter later and Louise in the present looks up and you know scans around we our mind tells us, our experience with cinema tells us, this is a memory. Mm. And she's reacting to that memory mm. and its impact on her. There's even like lovely little touches like when uh, she's asked if she's pregnant, she looks at Ian for a moment and then looks away. And uh, this is something for if you go back again later, it's a little flash of, of something, some instinct, some potentially. It could just be that she's embarrassed. But it could be a very directed moment on the, the part of the director and actors. But it's all our interpretation, so that when the twist, it feels like a, a cheapening of what we're seeing to call the revelation at the end of the film a twist. It's not a twist so much as it contextualizes and then re-establishes to the audience how it is about itself. It doesn't go, aha, it makes you hurt all the more mm. as you realize that this is now going to be a choice for her rather than simply a painful memory. Mm. Well, it's you can liken it to finding something out about somebody that contextualizes their behavior so far to you. There's your interpretation of them before you found out that piece of information and then there's your understanding of them after you found out that piece of information that doesn't make that piece of information a twist yeah that's why i value flashbacks i remember having a, a dispute with james bachelor who i love uh but uh, i figured he was dead wrong on this one he said he hated flashbacks uh, and felt that they just stood in the way of the story moving forward whereas i love flashbacks as a way of establishing okay this character has been acting like this the whole way through the story and you've been thinking what a jerk now we can see what happened to them which will not necessarily excuse but it will at least explain the root cause of why they believe potentially in if, if they're going to be moving forwards a lie or why they are trapped like this yeah absolutely to me flashbacks are not absolutely key, but an incredibly useful, often very elegant tool for 
getting to the heart of a character. If you stay in the present all the time, eventually you're going to have to have them explain that shit anyway. Why not just go there? Well, humans don't stay in the present all the time. We are constantly bouncing back and forwards between memory, which affects how we respond to situations in the given moment, fear of what's coming or anticipation of what's coming that causes us to react in specific ways. The whole thing about the the heptapods being able to see time in a non-linear fashion and, and be able to sort of understand that all these things are kind of happening, not necessarily simultaneously, but that they can have an impact on older events as well as future events. Humans have that. That's just not what we call it. We anticipate and plan that's seeing the future. That's seeing the, the likely outcome of if you do X, Y, Z. Now We predict based on experience. Exactly. And we our memories are coloured by the things that we're anticipating because we're, we're kind of experiencing them again in order to impact on how we go into this future event. And it, it did occur to me that when we, when you treat trauma, when you, when you try to address trauma, this is kind of what you're doing. You, you, re, you recreate a traumatic event and particularly with something like PTSD, your, your brain kind of, as far as your brain's concerned, it's happening now. So you're, you're reliving that event, but then you recognize that you are in fact safe. So you're changing the actuality of that thing that happened. Because in your head, now going forwards, you don't just associate it with the fear and pain and, and everything that, that came around it. Because you can now put it in a zone of, this is happening, this terrible thing has happened, but I am safe. And when you watch the film the second time and you actually have the full grasp of the detail, just in case anyone is listening who didn't go and watch the film, the language the heptapods teach to Louise is the gift, is the weapon, is the tool. It's not to be used as a weapon at all. That's just their word. They don't have any word for weapon. They've never needed one. That's our interpretation. It is the thing that they give us. Their deal is... They give us this now, and in 3,000 years they'll come back and we'll owe them a solid. What they're giving us, this language, allows us to comprehend our future as memory, to be able to see things forward and backwards. And there was a fascinating element of the um, the behind-the-scenes stuff where the original writer talked about how the Big Bang is proceeding to a midpoint when things will then begin to collapse in again. And effectively we get memories going in that direction to the past as we move away from the Big Bang. But as soon as we hit that big crunch and start moving back inwards again and funneling back down into a single piece of infinitely dense stuff, on the way back to becoming a singularity, to becoming entirely unified... Prior, one presumes, to another Big Bang, and starting all over again. On the journey back, memories may work in the other direction. 
which means given the vastness of the universe, feasibly, there may already be creatures alive who do live in that direction and that the heptapods might be on that wavelength already and that what they're effectively teaching us is an ability to think in four dimensions, yeah. to write in four dimensions, to observe time from a, a privileged distance. Yeah. From a central point rather than from one or other end of the line. And that, if you think about the, the hope implicit in that message, in 3,000 years we will need your help. That suggests we will live 3,000 years. Exactly. Which is the most hopeful. That, not only that we will live 3,000 years, but that we will be in a fit state to help a race like this. Mm. Yeah. Which is not dissimilar to a film called The Last Mimsy, which is another um, original sci-fi that nobody saw. Uh, but it, it features a similar ridiculous length of time travel mm. and state of the human race in the far, far-flung future. Yeah. Which is an incredibly hopeful thought for me. One of the concepts that was thrown out in the behind-the-scenes discussion was what impact does it have on your outlook on life if you know when you will die does that bring you a sense of despair knowing that this is going to be end at the end of your life and the first thought that came into my head was Wizards. you're immortal <laughs> until that point yeah. you know nothing can hurt you there is some contention if you look at the film uh, and it's difficult to really pin down because they don't make a solid reasoned argument for or against destiny, fate, the idea that everything is written. It's said in the behind-the-scenes material that everything is one big solid cube and we happen to be standing at a point where we can look into the future and predict what might happen and we can look into the past along the other line of the cube, but we can't travel back and forth along it as fourth dimensional beings mm. but that suggests that everything is written which devalues Louise's choice if she doesn't have a choice and if she's going to have a child no matter what and if the child is going to as in the original book die in a rock climbing accident age 25 there's no choice and also it's kind of frustrating for a movie audience to watch and just go well just stop her rock climbing that's easy. That is less about personal choice and more about the interference with somebody else's free will. Yeah. The very fact that Louise believed at least that she had the choice to have Hannah or not have Hannah suggests that destiny is not fixed, that the future is not set, that we can affect it in some capacity, maybe merely ripples. thing goes. The future's not set. There's no fate but what we make for ourselves. Or maybe it's a series of constants and variables. Maybe in 3,000 years the heptapods are going to be visited by interdimensional beings that explain to them that in actual fact while they see all of time as simultaneous, 
these other creatures see all of probability as simultaneous, that not only has everything happened, but everything that can happen has so happened. Fifth dimensional beings, yeah. who in turn will be visited by sixth, sixth dimensional, dimensional beings. Sixth dimensional beings, who will give them a message that we can't possibly even come up with yet. <laughs> Again, this is touching on um, Interstellar. Mm. There are two main reasons why the, uh, the the death of poor Hannah was uh, changed from the book. One, if she was a 25-year-old, that would have given the game away immediately, mm -hmm. which suggests that they did want to at least keep this hidden to a, uh, a point. Uh, although watching it the second time, it's so much more powerful mm -hmm. when you know how it's going. And it doesn't feel like a twist then. It just no. becomes the film becoming itself. Yeah, it's just it's another layer to the narrative because now you can see forwards mm. and backwards the same way that Louise can. And the other one was that the uh, climbing accident is, like I say, a, a frustrating accidental death, which seems like it could be prevented by a diligent enough mother, whereas an incurable sudden disease is something she can't fight against. Mm. She has to make a binary choice. Yeah. yeah. That sense of forward and backwards and the interchangeable nature of the, the parent-child role, by the way, is there's a, a phone call that Louise has with her mother early on, and her mother is asking her for reassurance about what's going on out there in the world mm. and she says to her I'm watching the same newsreel you are I don't have any additional information but that's a parent reaching backwards when it's a parent's job to provide reassurance to the child but it's Louise learning this language uh, which gets referenced by Ian as the sapir wolf hypothesis in that learning the language has slowly transformed her perception of reality, which relates, of course, back to what we were talking about, how people communicate on the internet and how that then informs on how they then continue to communicate, mm. how their minds work, yeah. how my mind works in that I am keyed into expressing myself verbally every week mm. in, within the context of a film. But you can never be sure how those tangents and explorations and interpretations are being received yeah. by the people on the other end of them. One of the best exchanges in this is when Forrest Whitaker comes to get... The pilot. <laughs> Sorry, I should call him by his character name, really. Uh, when General Webber comes to get Louise initially and she doesn't want to go at the moment and he's talking about going to speak to somebody else mm. instead. Louise says to him, what's the Sanskrit to word him, for... Ask him what's the Sanskrit word for war and what's his translation of it. And when Weber comes back later on, he says that, okay, we asked this guy and he says it's Gavesty and his interpretation is an, an argument. argument. What's your interpretation? And Louise says... The, the desire, desire for more cows. cows. It's a... It's a an acquisitive word, not a two sides debating with each other mm. word. And I typed Gavesty into my notes and Apple auto-corrected it to fascist I. <laughs> There's a communication problem. I'm not even kidding. That's how Apple interprets the Sanskrit word for war. <laughs> Referring back to an, a, a podcast we did several years ago, the heptapods do kind of remind me of the Mundashi one. War is coming. 
stones not safe on Earth anymore. In 300 years, when evil returns, so shall we. The fifth element. Oh. We will return in several hundred years. Yes. Okay. After giving us a gift. Do you know what it made me think of? And this was echoed by Louise's conversation with General Shang at the party. What? Trash can. Remember, Remember the, the trash, trash can. Dust. Win. Dude. <gasps> it's also basically Flight of the Navigator. Mm. All this hurt? You will feel nothing. Will I remember everything? You will retain all that. How many times have you done this thing? Zero. Zero? You mean never? I'm not gonna let you try this out on me. What if you fry my brain? I will not fry your brain. How do you know? We'll be doing a show on that at some point. But the best stories are the ones that retell existing stories, but in a way that makes them new and gives you new ways of looking at that information that was already there. It, it, they deepen your understanding. They don't just try to come up with stuff that's, that's novel. Because frankly, at this point in our collective history, I think coming up with something that is totally new and original is impossible. Even if you think it's original, someone else someone has thought else it. Someone else has thought it somewhere. May I remind you, 8% of the human race who have ever lived, mm. who a lot of whom lived through the 20th century, where which was a hotbed for creativity. Absolutely. And continues to be. Yeah. So again, for folks who haven't uh, seen the film, and you should have seen the film before you listen to us, global tensions have risen to fever pitch and every, everything shuts down and China looks like it's about to attack the uh, heptapods. And Louise averts this by snatching a mobile phone and calling General Shang to tell him his wife's dying words, which she remembers him telling her, along with his cell phone number, 18 months from now at a party. She's now seeing the future as memories and begins to comprehend this ability at the exact point where she can save the world. Mm. She is, in effect, a superhero. She is. And it did occur to me, I could be plucking this out of thin air, but there might be a significance to the 18 months. It's the nine months of a pregnancy mm -hmm. and then nine months again. Yeah. And then we're subjected to... And this is something that Mikey said that was absolutely beautiful. Mikey Newman said this. She holds Ian, uh, Jeremy Renner, after the heptapods leave, now that she knows what's going to happen, now that she knows she's going to have a child, now that she knows Ian's going to be the father, and he doesn't know all of this. And she also knows she's going to have to tell him at some point which will drive him away. And she holds him for the first time, whilst also knowing that there will be a last time, and this invents new emotions that haven't yet got names, mm. is what Mikey said, and that was stirring. Nostalgia for something that hasn't happened yet. I know we've talked about that emotion before. Mm. And I think you mentioned uh, a level of uh, intelligence at the beginning of this film, just that it immediately comes in with that, that Lyra had watched it uh, the second time with me, and she loved it. She got it. She was on board. She got the time travel, at least time memory displacement aspect of it. She got the placement of Hannah being after, not before. And you said she was an intelligent girl, and I said that there's... I reminded you of the, 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 the many types of intelligence mm. 
uh, that you can excel at. Um, we were discussing the other day physical intelligence. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that this applies to athletes or people who are able to move their body in extraordinary ways. And uh, I think honestly that there should be a term physical genius because that applies. To which end, I also feel like this, there should be such a thing as an emotional genius because there is emotional intelligence that is on this spectrum as well. Which reminded me of one of my favorite lines from Jurassic Park. But you can't think through this one, John. You have to feel it. And that applies to Arrival. You can't just watch this film logically. You have to be able to fathom what is going through the hearts of these characters, what is going through the soul of Louise. Yeah. Which is not necessarily to say that you have to have experienced those emotions yourself, as you say, and as Mikey said, some of them don't exist. Some of them don't, we certainly don't have words for because the concepts are too weird and they require too much explanation. But to engage with how those emotions are communicated is really key to getting into the depth of this film and such a huge part of that is how it's done visually and performatively and outstandingly performed by Adams and Renner particularly but everybody in it is is superb really really good regarding the types of intelligence if you google Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences I'm not going to go through the full list but he had all sorts of different types of intelligence and intelligence in the concept he's using it is to do with the speed of the connections that allow you to do those things. So yes, physical intelligence, as far as he was concerned, absolutely is a thing. List the rest of them. Uh, oh, okay. Because one of these, one, one of you listeners, that statatistically speaking, folks, we've got at least one genius in well, each of was, these yeah, listening right now. This was part of his theory. Everybody excels at at least one of these things. Most people are pretty good at several. Okay. Um, and there will be some that you just can't do no matter how hard you try because nobody can be brilliant at everything. So you've got uh, logical mathematical intelligence, which is about quantifying things, making hypotheses and proving them. That's what we generally tend to understand intelligence as being. Um, you've got musical intelligence, so people who, who pitch tone, that kind of thing just instantly clicks with them. Naturalist intelligence, which is about understanding living things and reading nature and, and all of that making sense when somebody just looks at it. I'm wondering how many points I should apply to each of these. <laughs> well, indeed, yeah. <laughs> it feels like character building. Uh, spatial intelligence, which is the ability to visualise the world in 3D. Mm -hmm. I have none of that. I can't even comprehend my own personal space half the time. I crash into things. I think I might be pretty... Have quite a few points in that. Is it also possible to have 4D spatial intelligence where you can predict things that probably will happen within this 3D space I, I would along the line so. of time? Yes, hmm. yes, quite feasibly. Uh, so then there's linguistic intelligence, which is finding the right vocabulary and words to express what you mean. I, I think I probably have a bit more of that. Hmm. I think that deserts me at crucial times. Yeah. Um, existential intelligence, which is sort of comprehending philosophy and the questions of why we live and why we die. Again, that's one of my areas of expertise, I personally think. Bodily kinesthetic intelligence, which is coordinating your mind with your body. Now, that's this athletic genius, genius that you're talking about. The ability to tell your uh, a part of your anatomy to do the thing you want it to do and have it do it 
immediately. I think Muhammad Ali was several types of these geniuses. Yeah. I, I, again, dream of having that kind of intelligence. My ability to control my own body is often useless to me. Um, and then there are two types of emotional intelligence, and because we, we have heard quite a lot in recent years about emotional intelligence and how important it can be, but the, uh, Gardner thought there were two types. There is interpersonal intelligence, which is sensing other people's feelings and motives, and then there is intrapersonal intelligence, which is understanding yourself, what you feel and what you want. And while we would think that the two always go hand in hand, they don't. Some people can comprehend themselves brilliantly, but can't translate that to others. And some people put other people first so consistently that their own understanding of their motives and feelings is abandoned. So as you said before, this uh, film was based on the story of your life by Ted Chiang. And the events are quite different, but he started with the idea. He started with the end point that we reach here where Louise knew she was going to have a child and knew that child was going to die early and still chose to have her. And his question to himself was, what might bring that about? And he went through a whole gamut of, well, she could take mind-altering drugs and eventually settled on aliens. So there was obviously a hell of a lot that changed on the way to the screen. I'm going to go back to my original statement, as I always originally intended, uh, where I said that this was the worst thing imaginable, to bury your own child, and question that, because that is actually something that the movie does. The question was, why would Louise decide to have this child, even if she knew the child was going to die? And ultimately, you don't actually need to speculate wildly using sci-fi on why this would happen. People have children every day where the odds of that child having a difficult life or maybe not having uh, a, a particularly lengthy life are on the table, are on the cards. People do have to occasionally roll the dice. There is a certainty and a uh, her being able to put a pin in exactly what is going to take her child's life but it's effectively in the same ballpark as people who say have a hereditary disease themselves which means that their child is very likely to have a disease as well and for whatever reason decide to have a child or somebody with a blood disorder or somebody with brittle bones or somebody who has a history of a particular illness in their family and ultimately Louise decides that it is worth the pain, it is worth the loss to have this love. And again, you don't have to look much further than love itself to get how profound this is. None of us are going to be able to stay together forever. When you fall in love with somebody and decide to stay with them, it's only ever going to be temporary. Something is going to tear you apart and plenty of people subscribe to a hope that there is something beyond death but there's always that level of uncertainty the faith that we require to believe in a god or just that there is something else beyond this existence necessitates a measure of uncertainty otherwise that faith is meaningless yeah 
There is another element to that as well and in all of the, the videos that we've seen talking about the film people have discussed this whole you know is is love worth the loss and the decision on Louise's part that it is but there's a facet of it that I haven't seen anybody talk about yet which is that it's not just about the love that Louise feels it's not just about Hannah being an object for her to feel affection for and that being the important element of her decision she has a very brief conversation with Hannah in one of her memory flashes where she talks to her about her poetry and her art and what the she puts that out she into the world exactly it's not just about louise's emotional state and her wanting to experience that it's also about what this creation of hers goes on to create for potentially for other people and those relationships that we have those connections that we have with people the relative positive and negative factors in those relationships are not entirely what they're about what they create that is more than the sum of their parts is also a huge element of why those things which will inevitably cause us pain you fall in love with somebody you are inevitably one of you is going to lose the other even if you are together for the rest of your lives the benefit of what comes of that is not just the the positive emotions that you get to feel and the pain is something that you kind of go well that's I'll I'll just you know that's a, a fair trade off it's about what you create and the pain is part and parcel of that it contextualizes your relationship mm. Love is the embracing of others for as long as you can until you must let go. And this film hurts. It is frightening and dispiriting. And yet it is so hopeful and profound. It's sad and small and personal. It is too enormous to comprehend and yet it's so simple. And it's cold and warm and it's here now and it's long gone and it's remembered and it's unseen and it's forgotten and it's yet to be experienced arrival is time <laughs>